Hello everyone, I'm Bola Adekulu. Welcome to another episode of the Globalization of Entrepreneurship podcast. We speak with founders and operators, investors and enablers of great companies across the faster growing emerging markets, specifically Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia, Latin, India and Pakistan. My number one goal is to share cross-country insights and help us all raise our game globally. I'm incredibly excited about our guest today, a truly global investor and someone I have a great deal of respect for, Igosa Omoigui, who is the founder and managing uh, general partner of Echo VC Partners, a seed and early stage technology venture firm, investing in underrepresented founders and underrepresented markets. The firm started investing in Africa and has since expanded to other emerging markets such as Mexico, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, South Africa, Brazil, Chile, Mexico, uh, India and Pakistan and, and other underserved markets in the United States, UK and Germany. Prior to this, Igosa was with Intel for uh, nearly 10 years and his last role was uh, Intel Capital uh, Director, investing in consumer internet and semantic technologies where he sourced iconic companies such as Facebook, Pandora and AdMob. So with that phenomenal uh, introduction, Igosa, um, let's, let's get straight into it. Welcome, great to have you. How are you doing today? Thank you, glad to, you know, sometimes when you when people run through the bio, I'm just like, this sounds like a lot of propaganda. So <laughs> it is just little old me, uh, but thank you for having me, really glad to be here. No, it's true though, it's true. Um, you're definitely somebody that I respect in the, in the, in the ecosystem. Um, so I guess we're just gonna go straight into it. So first, first question, tell us about you and EcoVC, you know, what stage, uh, what stage do you invest in? What's your average check size and so on? Sure. So I, I, as, you know, as the sort of the bio says, I was at Intel Capital for just under ten years, and when I left, I was making uh, consumer technology investments, and with also a very specific focus on semantic technologies, so everything around AI, augmented reality, machine learning, and 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 the like. And so while I was at Intel Capital, I was very fortunate to have had um, a bunch of different jobs, and and I think a lot of what you know, those, those experiences in Intel Capital sort of shaped my view of the world and shaped the way I wanted to design uh, EcoVC as a global you know, early stage investing firm. Uh, so this starts really, you know, sort of the, the thing about, you know, where EcoVC sort of starts. So it starts really in 2005 um, when, you know, I started to sort of get knee deep into what was back then called Web 2.0, which was the social web, right? And um, and it struck me, you know, in, in the Valley, you know, good old days where we used to hang out with folks like Mike Arrington, the founder of TechCrunch and the like, um, that this was going to be a very significant shift, uh, not just within the US, but more importantly, globally, that bringing the global markets onto the internet, you know, using these, you know, gateways, you know, at that point in time, you had a variety of them, um, wherever it was, you know, in China, it was in the US, it was in Europe, we got very excited about the possibilities. And so that really sort of shaped how I started to think about where to invest. And the, the, the primary driver for building this investment thesis was a, was a belief that, you know, these were going to be gateways for the world to get introduced to the internet. And so over the next few years, you know, the, the entire goal was to find companies, iconic companies or iconic in the making companies that would be able to become really massive platforms. And um, so over the next few years, I, you know, I essentially said, look, I, you know, we should be investing large checks. 
So roughly about a billion dollars is what I was thinking into maybe the top 15 or 20 companies in, in the world. And so this was always sort of well before the DSGs of the world started doing that strategy. Um, but what was sort of more interesting was, you know, I got enough interest and attention inside Intel Capital to go start to chase down these companies. And so chase down Facebook, you know, not just once, but twice, chase down LinkedIn, chase down AdMob, and, you know, Pandora, a bunch of iconic companies. But what was also interesting in parallel was that because Intel Capital is a much larger firm than most people realize on the outside looking in. Yeah, I think when I left, you know, we're in about 34 countries, Intel Capital, not Intel. Um, so I'm doing roughly, you know, sort of between five, $600 million a year in outbound investing. What you learned very quickly working there, and, you know, super grateful for that, was that innovation had no boundaries, right? True innovation had no boundaries. And so what was true was that when you, when you didn't find innovation in a particular geography, it wasn't because it was there, it was because you can see it, right? And so the key thing then was, how do you find these secrets when everyone else has seems to have missed them? And so when I left Intel Capital, you know, in part because I was, you know, to be very candid, frustrated uh, because I couldn't get the Intel Investment Committee to approve those, you know, those sort of iconic deals, I, I decided to take some time off to sort of pause and think. And in that process of 2010 for about six months, you know, just essentially did nothing but pause and thought and just, I got at home. But what that did was, and this is something I always tell founders a lot, which is the art and science of the pause, you know, can be very underrated. Uh, everybody sort of expects that you have to be executing, you have to be showing traction in your personal life, in your professional life, in everything. And sometimes what you miss is the value of just halting mm -hmm. and recalculating and reformatting and refactoring. And so in, in that process, I realized that there was, there was a very interesting investment thesis that I built around taking the traditional format of, of risk-taking, you know, early stage, even early stage, that you know, the value was well known for and exporting that to markets that no one paid, was paying attention to. And the two markets that were most interesting to me were Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And for a lot of reasons, right? When, you know, with the research, you sort of saw that they were very positively correlated on, on across many facets. And so I went out to try to raise money and, and I got pushed back. You know, a lot of people were like, this, is a, this, this market is never going to amount to anything. That was a consistent piece of feedback. Mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot of people were like, this is a dumb idea. You know, some people actually accused me of having very poor judgments. Others were like, why are you living in Palo You can make all the money you want here. Thinking it was just about the money. So I just you know, persevered, pushed forward, and I was able to, to, to raise, raise uh, some capital uh, to start off in, in Africa, which we did in, in 2014. So that was roughly, you know, seven and a half years ago since we, we closed that first fund. Um, I look back now, I look back at two markets that were most interesting back then, Southeast Asia and Southern Africa, and I'm like, mm, they've turned out to be okay. Um, and, uh, but I think more importantly, what I'm most grateful for is that our mission, which was to invest in secrets, right? I'm, Underneath that overarching mission is investing in underrepresented founders, investing in underserved markets. You know, underrepresented founders are underestimated founders. You know, those two, sort of two sides of one coin. Um, you know, that has sort of become a thing now, right? Now, thematically and theoretically, yes. If you look at the numbers, you know, no, right? The numbers are still very sad um, in terms of sort of like truly deploying real capital into those into those 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 themes. Um, but again. You know, it, it, it's, it's a slog, you just, you just have to sort of go in there and, 
and, and try to shift people's you know mindsets and, and viewpoints. But now, you know, as we sort of look at FOVC, you know, that's what we represent. We represent, you know, risk takers, we represent investors who who sort of zig when everybody else zags, we represent the best of our ability of being able to look around the corner. And, and then I think finally we represent the, the kind of investors that can be both high quality custodians and stewards of capital, but also you know, partners and, and, and what I would call uh, foxhole partners with, with these founders. Um, and you know, as we've seen more and more excitement around investing, um, we're, we're, I think we're very grateful for it. I mean, we are a little concerned about some of the excessive frothiness that the markets have sort of displayed over the last year. Uh, we're not sure whether or not the current market slow down in the public markets is necessarily going to calm people's you know excesses. Uh, but you know that be that as it may, we are very confident that you know seeing innovation across these markets and finding high quality founders who are now trying to drive the true value of technology, whether it's in a deflationary aspect or otherwise to the to the masses, um, really, really, really is exciting. So that's Pretty much us, you know, we have, you know, we operate out of sort of three locations, Lagos, Nigeria, Nairobi, in Kenya and London. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have another anchor location in New York sometime this year. Mm-hmm. And the goal is just to continue executing what we do best. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Igosa. And I think we're going to talk, uh, touch on a number of these things as we go through the, the, the conversation. Um, I guess in terms, of, uh, in terms of the stage, and the the average check size for Echo VC. What what is what is the stage? What is the average check size? What are the themes that you are generally invest in? So we 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 have. I don't necessarily say we we'll, we'll, we'll call ourselves innovators, but we are innovating in terms of not just the the geographies and the founder you know founder archetypes that we invest in, but we're also going to be innovating in terms of sort of like you know the product. And so, you know, can't get too much into that, but, you know, we do seed stage um, generally, and that will be a pre-seed, pre-seed and seed. And so that will be anywhere set up between $50,000 and $500,000. Mm-hmm. Um, we will have another vehicle um, that will be doing early stage. So mm-hmm. anywhere set up between one and two million and $5 million per, per check. And then we also will have, you know, you know that will probably show up, I'm not sure, when this gets published, but you know, but we'll also have some vertical seed vehicles uh, that we can't talk about now, but that will also be part of our, our strategy. And that will be making pre-seed and seed investments in specific verticals. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, so much for that. Um, I guess could you tell I've done a bit of research um, uh, here in terms of preparing for the for this podcast. Um, and I came across your made for Africa investment thesis. Could you tell us more about your made for Africa investment theme? Um, and what you know, what you got, what got you excited about them? So yeah, so you know, one of one of the biggest sort of sayings, or most my, my favorite saying, uh, has to be one from Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's sort of partner and you know fellow traveler and buddy in crime and the like. And he has the saying that that um, you know where he asks, "Have you done the work required to form an opinion?" and I, I use it all the time because what I what I also realized is there is nothing better than sort of exercising your you know your preparation muscles right and sort of building muscle memory from that and from there you can sort of now sort of create some interesting insights um, and then of course there's something called the vocab where you sort of get the nuances of communicating those those insights but when we when we 
focused on these geographies, these new geographies, one of the, you know, especially specifically Africa, um, we spent two years on the ground observing. And so it wasn't, oh, go pick up some nice, you know, research report from one of the big consulting firms and, and you know, sort of, you know, draft off of that. It was more around, you know, if you're going to sort of use technology to, to deliver innovation and, and, and value to the edge, you know, to sort of the mass market, um, you needed to understand these markets. You needed to understand the dynamics of these markets. And, you know, there, you know, there's some understanding you can get from surveys and polling, but there's a lot more by just pausing and observing. And so a lot of that was using the combination of those tools to fundamentally get a sense for what ailed these markets, what powered them, and what they were missing. And with sort of that understanding, and understanding that sort of is you know, continuously sort of refined, um, we built sort of that four-leg, you know, made for Africa thesis, which was one, organizing the offline, essentially recognizing that you couldn't digitize these markets until you understood and organized them. The second was lubricants, which was where we recognized that a lot of these markets had built-in friction for, and you know, once you see friction, you see corruption, you see a whole bunch of things. And so once you're able to take out this friction, you could then essentially create sort of real value across a very broad um, segment. Uh, the third was anti-fragility, which is recognizing that these markets had essentially, or maybe self-taught, learned the ability to thrive despite the disorder, to thrive in the chaos. And so when you recognize that, then you now understood sort of how to think like them, right? And then learn to think like them, you can figure out sort of what products and services they needed. Now, I'm going to come back to that because we've had to revisit that for a variety of reasons sort of, sort of during the pandemic and post-pandemic. And the fourth one was Lyft, which was a recasting of the sort of traditional approaches to, to impact. And, uh, you know, and so our view was that you could talk about impact all day long, but when you looked at this, not from an individual level, okay, I'm going to give, I'm going to create 2000 jobs and whatever it is, but how do I change the trajectory of households, mm -hmm. right? And the members of the households, how do I deliver and create and deliver optionality to these households? Uh, then you now started to really think more broadly about how technology could help you do that. So those were the four legs. And, and to come back to the theme of anti-fragility sort of thriving on, on disorder or in chaos, uh, during the pandemic, you know, I started to sort of question whether it was possible for an ecosystem or economy or people to be too anti-fragile. Mm. They became so resilient that they just took more abuse mm. than was defensible, mm. Mm. right? And so then you now started to say, you know, is it always a good thing to be anti-fragile or to, you know, you know, do you, you know, is it great to be elastic or should you have some, you know, hooks law type breakpoints, mm -hmm. right? And so therefore, how do you sort of take that anti-fragility, but then you can now harness it in a way to shape and move things that are more positive, right? Whether it's sort of driving productivity or the like, this is just accepting things you know so you know you're a nigerian so you know the concept of what nigerians would say just manage it which is it's not that good but just manage it just deal with it mm -hmm. and you then realize that that's a facet of this sort of resilience which is okay fine it doesn't do what i really wanted to do but i'll just deal with it and so you now have these weird forms of acceptance that literally become sort of serve up a very high coefficient of drag mm -hmm. that will limit the entire economy 
from making real, you know, discernible progress. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, one of the things where, you know, there's a big theme, we're revisiting it, trying to figure out what the implications of that conclusion would look like. But yes, that's what the media Africa thesis said it looked like. Thank you so much for that. And for our founders um, that, that are listening, um, could you give us an example of kind of the sectors that you are, um, I guess, from a sector perspective, such as fintech or something like that, um, just so that they can they can understand, um, uh, you know, and 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 understand and approach you um, if they are working within those sectors. Yeah, so I think across the sort of more traditional name sectors, mm-hmm. we've been pretty agnostic. I mean, we just we will do anything to sort of tech and tech enable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether it is ad tech or it's fintech or it's media mm-hmm. or you know it's it's uh, you know logistics. We've done pretty much everything. We've done you know, new energy, we've done food and ag, mm-hmm. uh, we've done circular economy, we've done fintech, quite a bit of that. Um, uh, we've done uh, healthcare, supply mm-hmm. chain. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, very, we're very open. And, and I think for founders that, you know, are looking for capital and, and guidance um, and experience, um, you know, we are probably as good as anybody else and being able to offer all of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we, we pick our founders, I think, quite carefully. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not, we don't chase deals. We're not deal heat type investors. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not our style. You know, we know what works for us. Mm-hmm. We are very clear about the kinds of founders we like to work with. Mm-hmm. And so, but in terms of sectors, we're pretty, pretty agnostic. Okay, thank you so much for that, and and we're gonna dive into into that and kind of in a little bit more detail to understand um, the 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 process of how you assess founders and so on, and we'll use like a case study from from one of your your investments. So um, I'll come back to that in, in a minute, though. Um, you mentioned one thing that I found really really interesting is um, based on my research is that you you are happy and even excited to invest in solo founders, um, which was something that um, other folks. Uh, generally in the investment space are, you know, see perceive as risky. Um, one, why, why are you happy to invest in, in solar founders? And two, do you have a higher bar for them than, you know, founding teams? So I think it's important to say, you know, we're happy investing in high quality founders, whether they come solo or not. Mm-hmm. So I'm not necessarily happier in one versus the other. Mm-hmm. I'm just happy when I find them, however they come. Mm-hmm. But we have some interesting data in the portfolio. So we have one of the largest portfolios of women-led businesses. Mm-hmm. And in that segment, we have probably the largest of solo founders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so of course, you know, one of the things we've gone back to do is ask, okay, so why are we seeing so many solo women founders? Mm-hmm. And the truth is that when you see sort of diverse teams, a lot of people check the box with diversity by saying, oh, there's a woman on the founding team or there's somebody in senior management, right? But that's very different from this is the owner, right? Yeah. And, and, and what we found is that, that, you know, these solo founders are built of a different cloth, mm-hmm. right? They are, you know, there's the multiple whammy they come with, right? So they're black, they're women, and they're solo founders. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we think about these things, we're thinking, you know, if you were able to sort of, cut through those three whammies, the least we can do is listen and figure out exactly what it is that you built here, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and what we found when we've invested is, you know, they have very interesting insights into the markets. 
Mm. And so I'll tell you something we figured out as well in investing in, in, um, in, uh, in women founders. And that is that, in the, in the solo women founders, and that is that when they, when they finally decide that they want to start a business, what they, what they go through to do that, if you know the real stories, you, you have to just doff your hat. Yeah. All right. and, and then they come out and say, this is what we've done. And so we said, okay, you know what? One of the things we recognized was, and people now sort of talk about it more and more, but we built into a process eight years ago, which was, we didn't really care how you came to us. A lot of people, a lot of VCs tell you, oh, you have to know someone who knows me. Now nah, we have a website and you fill it out and tell us what you're doing and send it in and we'll talk to you. Some of our best performing companies came into our website. They didn't know anybody who knew us. They just came to us. Um, the, the second thing is that the, you know, these, these founders, um, and this is not a general comment, mm -hmm. but this is a, a comment built out of, the, of our own observations. So it's a limited sample data set. One of the things we realized was that the women founders that we, we saw um, we're not the very best storytellers, mm -hmm. right? They, they were not the storytellers that would sort of wow you with flashy slides and, you know, and big, you know, oh, I'm going to make this thing a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And, and so to, to try to normalize the way we, we review these companies and evaluated these founders, what we would do specifically with women founders, will be we would tell them send us the deck but we're not going to actually go through the deck in the meeting okay we're just going to have a conversation right and what that did was that it, it really made a huge difference because all of a sudden you didn't see a you know someone sort of in a stilted way walking through slides but they're just telling you about who they were and the business they built and what the value they were looking to deliver and, and, you know, and, you know, and I'm so proud of, of our portfolio. Um, I've said this elsewhere, but we're highly confident that the best returns out of the portfolio will come from that side of the portfolio. Wow. The women level. Wow. Um, in fact, almost dead certain of it. Wow. <laughs> right. Wow. And so we now know how this business works. And so, you know, again, keeping these things open, not having these hard and fast rules that you know, will limit the way, you know, you limit upside. Well, why would you want to do that? You know, we're venture, we take risks. So you want to make sure you can maximize upside. So things like that, you know, there'll be certain rules of the game. They say, oh, don't do solo founders, that's great, no problem. We now understand how to support them, mm -hmm. right? Because it could be a little bit harder on them mm -hmm. um, than normal. Uh, but, you know, you don't get some of the more divisive things that happen behind the scenes between co-founders. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's at least that benefit. Sure. Thank you so much for that. Um, and we're going to kind of, you know, use that as a case study and, and, and go from there. Could you tell me an example of a, of a solo founder that you invested in and what made you particularly excited to invest in them? Uh, so we have a bunch of them. So, you know, so I don't want to say I have a favorite child here. So that's a <laughs> tough question. So, geez, that's a tough question. So it's just boy, an example. It's an example. So you could be, you could oh, pick man, several man. examples. Oh, man. We, have some, we have some absolute monster founders um, that are solo. Um, you know, so I will shout out a few and then I'll just, you know, you know, define sort of get into one. So Uju at Traders of Africa, uh, probably one of the most successful e-commerce, you know, you know, marketplaces out there. Many people don't know her. Uh, she's building essentially an Alibaba for Africa, just insane growth. Uh, we're the only institutional investor in that. Um, of course, Temi at Life Bank. 
mm-hmm. who's been grinding, you know, couldn't get in the restaurant until we finally showed up and said, okay, we'll put together a round. Uh, so proud of what she's done, optimizing the healthcare supply chain, you know, for not just blood, which is very important. When you're sitting in Oakland or in uh, Valley or in New York, you know, you have to go to the hospital, you, you anticipate and you expect that there's blood at the hospital. You know, you're in Nigeria and something happens to you, you know, one of your relatives is taking you to the hospital, the other is looking for blood. Because the chances are that there's not, there will not be blood at the hospital, nearly 100, wow. right? So being able to organize, organize all of that offline activity, um, and she's done it for blood, she's done it for oxygen, doing it for vaccines, uh, incredible. Um, you know, Saudad, who's doing, you know, at Easy, Easy Shop, who is essentially optimizing fresh produce, supply chains. Um, yeah, we have, we have, we have some you know, unbelievable founders. Uh, but, you know, the one I'll sort of use, because she's built sort of, you know, a truly global business is Sarah Grove. Uh, Sarah is Ethiopian, um, started growing in Kenya, um, it's now sitting in New York and, you know, in Kenya. And, um, you know, she left a very cushy job uh, to start Grow, which was, you know, essentially, look, you know, these uh, agriculture is, is, is a very, it's one sort of key economic drivers, but yet, you know, there's no optimization, there's not enough transparency, not enough information, so she set out to change it. And, um, and you know, was, you know, new, heard of her sort of right, maybe shortly after she had started it, uh, but it was kind of interesting, didn't sort of really keep close track of it, but eventually sort of she shows up, you know, you know, to, um, I like to tell the story, it's so crazy. So she shows up, she's raising, you know, she's out in the market raising. So we invite her to our, to our office in, in Lagos. Mm-hmm. And so she comes into the office. It's, you know, it's an hour meeting. It's, it's typical where you bring in folks and you talk to them or whatever it is. I think our meeting went on for two and a half hours. Wow. And, wow. And, um, and when she left, I like to describe it as a tornado came through our office, mm-hmm. right? And and it was it was Sarah that I attribute the creation of what we call the Wow Entrepreneur. It's a mm-hmm. construct we use internally called the WOW Entrepreneur, which is the with or without entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Which is this entrepreneur is going to win, with or without us. Mm-hmm. So what you want to be able to do is to figure out how to be <laughs> <able to> win. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I think you came in the middle of the week, you know, and a week and a half later, we're in New York. You know, I mean, we just looking at each other going, holy smokes, what was that? What just, <laughs> what, just, what, just, what just happened? Right. And I have never, you know, historically, I had not been sort of blown away in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. But boy, oh boy, that was, that was something. And, you know, and, you know, five years later, you know, I look around and, you know, and I say, I am yet to see a more important company startup in the world. Hmm. Right, Grow is the largest platform for ag and food data and insights, hmm. and also the largest platform for climate risk data and insights. Hmm. Right, so you're essentially looking, you know, like I like to tell her, you know, Grow serves a market that is the addressable market is eight billion. Hmm. It's everybody, hmm. and you know, Grow also serves a market that touches everybody every day. Wow. So food and climate every day. Hmm. Right, and so. When, you know, when, you know, I, I'm just so proud and, I'm, you know, it's just not just, I mean, it wasn't just being proud necessarily of sort of her, her team and what they've done, incredible, but in many ways, you're, you're, you're proud because she's gone through the whammies. She started this business herself. She's black. She's a woman, right? And now you have, you know, a group of fantastic investors around her, but we were the ones that were like, look, this, this person is going to be great. And, you know, they're going to be a whole bunch of non-believers and it doesn't matter. And, you know, and that's, you know, she was a secret until she wasn't, right? And so, 
the, you know, and so you, you will find these types of founders, they're not that common, but to have a founder like her building such an important company um, and still not known, right? It's, it's, you know, it's not a sexy FinTech, you know, but you know, that's a company that you can sort of realize that it's gonna be one of, sort of the largest and most successful companies in the world. And, you know, and it all started from some whirlwind meeting in Lagos. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, so let's break let's break down that process. Let's let's use uh, grow intelligence as as a good as a good case study. Firstly, how how did you meet her? Um, how did you, how did she how did the connection happen? So she, if I remember correctly, she used an email. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. There was an email, and she was coming to Nigeria, mm-hmm. and so of course we're like, you know, sure, come on in, and 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 you know that's sort of how it started, right? Now, in terms of sort of you know building the thesis, there are actually two companies I'm going to want to talk to talk to you about process because mm-hmm. we came at them very differently, right? Mm-hmm. So with Grow, right, it was it was obvious to us that that once you started thinking about our thesis, right, how you looked at friction and how you looked at about organizing the offline and digitizing it and then providing insights, you could see that she was you know, and then of course the lift where with better information, you can improve, you know, the farming communities, with better information you can improve, because agriculture is a gigantic ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And until you dive into it, you only see bits and pieces of it, but you don't really see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so we got very excited because we realized that, you know, with an AI platform that could ingest information, process it, you know, transform it, and then drive insights and analytics, you could really, really, really move, move markets. Mm-hmm. And so, we got excited. We were like, okay, let's sit down and dig deep into it. And so we started doing even more research into it. And of course, she was sitting in the middle of it all, so she could help direct it. But we did a bunch of independent research mm-hmm. and, and realized that, that there were two things about what she was doing that struck us. One was that I have used this concept of markets without edges. Mm-hmm. And, and she was sitting in the middle of a market without an edge. Could you... So could you? Yeah. So yeah. I'll, I'll describe what a market without edges looks like. Mm-hmm. So, you, so right now, Grow is sitting down in the middle of ag food, ag food security and climate risk. And if I told you five years ago what the what I thought the addressable market for that would look like, right? I, you know, I would have given you some basic numbers. Say, oh, information and data services in ag, maybe ten billion, according to McKinsey. You know, and climate, climate. Nobody knows what climate is going to look like, so on and so forth, right? And you know, and then you now catapult yourself five years after the fact, and you're coming out of COP twenty six, where there's what fifty four trillion in sort of overall commitments. Um, you've got you know food security that is expanding. Mm-hmm. So I could have taken that time and said, you know, that time is not big enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, ah, uh, because you know, like a VCEO, it's all about time until it isn't. But I realized that if we adhere to that mentality of these six towns, then we would essentially end up being in a place where you just lost sight of what was possible. Hmm. And so we were like, no, this is an unbounded opportunity. Okay. Okay. And mm-hmm. and today I look like a genius. I wasn't like I was trying to be a genius about anything. I was just like, look, this thing's unbounded. Right. And and then, you know, but you also knew that you also knew it was going to take five years. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling her this because mm-hmm. I said, you know, I remember saying, 
in all of my experience, and this is sort of where you see a lot of more pattern recognition, in all of my experience, mm -hmm. what you could consistently see was that data as a service platforms never ignited until after year five. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm sure there'll be some exception to that general rule, mm -hmm. but in my experience, that was the general rule. So you had, you knew mm -hmm. that there was going to be a five-year window, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is what VC is. If you waited for that five-year window, by the time it was five years, that company was so expensive yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, you're just going to sort of follow through. And, you know, and that has turned out to be the case. And it was great because, you know, we, you know, we, you know, you know, we actually had a much bigger conviction check, um, you know, with our partner. We, I think, wanted to invest, nine, you know, like nine million into the company, um, you know, but, you know, our strategic partner was like, uh, you know, like, you know, we'll do a little bit less. And so we did a little less. Of course, now when I look back, I'm like, well, I wish I'd done it. <laughs> <more. laughs> <I wanted." laughs> you know, but, but that's it. But it's interesting because we did another deal that would give you sort of a different flavor for how we think. Mm -hmm. And that was Optimile. Mm -hmm. So we invested in Optimile. Optimile is essentially operating system for sort of digital insurance, claims processing, B2B and the like. And we had looked at insurance in Africa for years, mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was just trying to understand why it didn't really work mm -hmm. in the traditional format you and I are used to, mm -hmm. right? And so we then we did a, 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 an investment in a company providing insurance to, to farmers in mm -hmm. agriculture, mm -hmm. right? It's a very small, very specific segment. But we're looking at sort of broader insurance. And again, this is the power of the observation. So one of the things we immediately understood in, in Nigeria and probably you know, many parts of Africa is that the single largest underwriter mm -hmm. for insurance is God. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Absolutely. By far, right? So every assets you buy, mm -hmm. your insurance policies will cover it with the blood of Jesus, mm -hmm. right? And, and it didn't really, it didn't seem in our view to really matter how much your, what your educational background was, because mm -hmm. we would hear it from people who had gone to school, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we're like, you know, there's no claims processing if that's your underwriter, right? Mm -hmm. So that's going to be a problem, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, but, you know, we kept sort of trying to figure out, okay, what really is the issue? Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about it from a first principles point of view. Mm -hmm. And then we then realized that, it, you know, in many parts of, when you're sort of evaluating markets in, in African opportunities, everything eventually ends up to just that trust deficit, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? There's people just don't trust mm -hmm. because, you know, the markets have betrayed them, the governments have betrayed, betrayed them, right? You know, companies have betrayed them, so they don't trust. So in digging around, doing some surveys, polling, asking folks, and asking folks not just within our own sort of small circle, but broader, because we do mm -hmm. that a lot. We then realize that a lot of people don't, don't actually sign up for insurance because they don't believe it. Mm, mm. like i'm going to pay you to cover this thing and then when something happens to it I, you're not going to pay me mm. right so that that compact right the understanding of the contractual compact is broken because no one's going to enter a contract when they when they're entering it and knowing that the other party the counterparty is not going to fulfill it mm. Mm. right so we then said okay so what do you need to do to fix that well mm. you need to fix that trust deficit mm -hmm. and and, and I'll tell you this hilarious story where we got real clarity. So I'm in a friend's office in Lagos and he sells cars. And he has um, someone who works for me who sort of runs around doing paperwork and a bunch of things. And, and you know, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm quite good at, you know, is that I just like to ask random people questions, mm -hmm. right? Just random, right? Because I need to know like, okay, fine. What do you think of X? Mm -hmm. So I, you know, so I ask, I say, I, I mean, 
Why? Why is it that people don't like to buy insurance here? Hmm. And and he goes, I, I got to buy insurance now. I said, No, they don't. He's like, What do you mean? I said, Look, there are roughly four million cars registered in Lagos, and there are one million roughly, roughly one million policies, you know, in existence. Okay, so that means the three million cars that don't have insurance. Insurance. Yeah, I got to have insurance. I said, okay, so who's giving them insurance? He said, I was say they buy from Oluwole. So of course, you may not know Oluwole, but Oluwole is sort of this place in Lagos where um, it's what I call the creator economy in Lagos because they are able to create paperwork that looks like the real, but it's not. <laughs> so, so, so I was like, oh, so they go get the insurance from Oluwole. I was like, I know they do it to insurance companies in Oluwole. He said, ah, they do it. So I said, really say yes, that the the good one, the good paper, the good looking paper, mm-hmm. is like two thousand naira, right? Which is now like like four dollars, right? He said the the really good one is around like four thousand naira, which is like eight dollars. I said okay, and I'm listening. I'm like okay, this is interesting. And I said, but you know that the third party insurance is like five thousand naira, the official one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm thinking. So of course, in my rational mind, I'm thinking, why would I spend four eight dollars when I could spend ten and get the real one? And get a real one, yeah. And he was like, because the real one would never pay you anything. Now. Okay, okay, okay. Mm. So I said, so then why are they spending that money? Size for police checkpoint. Mm. Mm. So I was like, ah. So you know, these, these are the insights that you won't see in a research report. Mm. So right? But you now you now start to understand, like, okay, we need to rethink this thing. Right. And so when we, 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 we built out an insure tech strategy and we actually sort of shared it on, on, on the clubhouse, you know, clubhouse session and an entrepreneur reached out and he, had, he was thinking about the market very similar ways. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And he then realized that if you didn't sort of build out a platform that sped up and took out all the friction on the insurance company side on how they sort of dealt with their consumers. You would never, and then of course, these are things where good word of mouth spreads and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So able to then now completely normalize and streamline that backend processing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in just great ways. And, you know, companies growing very fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been very excited to invest in it. Uh, but again, you know, I gave you this example because if two, you know, the way we sort of looked at grow and how we did it and the way we did Octomile, mm-hmm. right? Two very, you're picking up understanding mm-hmm. very differently, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we, we love both founders and uh, very excited to be the investors in them. So, just at, I mean, at a high level, just just to summarize for um, founders, what's what's your investment process? Um, I guess first meeting you have a they can reach out to you via the website or they can get introductions to you. How many meetings does it usually take? How long does it usually take? Just kind of high level structure so that founders can understand um, what it would look like, what your investment uh, process would look like, your typical one um, at a high level. Oh yeah. So typically what we what we try to do is that we, you know, we're very, very accessible, right? Mm-hmm. I'm always surprised when, you know, I find, you know, I talk to a founder and they're like, oh, we've been I've been following you on Twitter. And I'm like, you know, why did you you're following me on Twitter? Why did you have to go find someone who knew me? You're following me, just DM me, right? I'm much more amenable and approachable. Um but usually what we're asking for is, is so we're not doing companies, we're not, we don't invest in companies that don't, have not built some semblance of a product okay. and, and, and have not tested it in the market. Mm-hmm. We're not as interested instead of the, you know, how much traction you have, mm-hmm. but, you know, we believe that every startup is a hypothesis, 
-hmm. right? And so what we want to be able to, to see is a founder that has a conviction, enough conviction in that hypothesis to have gone and tested it. Okay. <laughs> right. And then once they've tested it, they come back and they go, okay, I see some good results. Okay, I need to raise a little bit of money to sort of expand what I'm doing here. Then we're probably the right investor for you at that point. And usually we'll take one, you know, one meeting to sort of think about it. Um, you know, we get a ton of, of incoming requests, slides, you know, we like to see decks early and the like. Um, but then you know, now the good thing about sort of our submissions portal on our website is we send a deck in, um, everybody sees it, the whole firm. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of important. And then we, you know, we take these meetings. Um, you know, reach out those the, those that are interesting to us. And then we, we sit down, take meetings, we have internal discussions about it. And then if, if we like that, then we now move to engage. Mm -hmm. you know, have maybe one or two more meetings, um, mm -hmm. evaluate what they've built, you know, mm -hmm. any data room that they might might or might not have, mm -hmm. um, do some reference check-in. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, you know, the key thing is, you know, do we sort of believe in this hypothesis? Mm -hmm. right? And if we do, uh, you know, do we have the conviction to sort of go ahead and support that? So from a timeline perspective, it really depends, right? You know, we've, we've, done, we've done deals in four days, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and some we've done in 10 to 12 weeks, mm -hmm. right? And so it depends on sort of where you're sitting, you know, are you sort of pre-seed or you seed, you know? But usually, you know, from a time perspective, um, we can sort of get to a decision in two to four weeks. Mm -hmm. And then there's probably another two to four weeks to sort of get the documentation of the like, so yes, yeah, so that's pretty much how we, we operate. But then the other thing that's a little bit weird mm -hmm. and we're a little bit of an unusual firm is that we have an investment committee that is comprised of everybody in the firm. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually care, it's a true democracy, we don't really care what the title, what your title is and the like, because the truth is we built the firm to be a confluence of perspectives and experiences. Mm -hmm. And you know, and everybody in the firm gets to participate in the monetary upside of what we make. Mm -hmm. So why that is important is that then when everybody comes to the investment committee to make a decision, each person has a vote. So, you know, you take that vote seriously because, you know, that's your money you're playing with, yeah. right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, but it is, it is really, it is really helpful to be able to get everybody to chime in and, you know, and we don't have, we don't require unanimity. Um, and, you know, there've been a few times when I've been overruled, you know, I like something and they're just not voting enough to, to get behind it. So I accept that and move on. So is it, is it, so for example, in your investment committee, is it, is it, um, is it majority rules or everything yeah. that's the majority? Okay, 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 cool. Thank you so much for that. Um, and just one final question on that before we talk about the, the ecosystem in general. Do you typically take board seats in terms of working with companies? Um, I've seen some, some information around uh, the importance of governance from a, from a startup perspective, um, or is that, I guess, is that dependent on, on a deal by deal basis? So, Historically, you know, VC as a whole is changing very quickly. You know, there was a market shift to sort of more founder-driven VC. Mm -hmm. um, so you couldn't, you know, the prior expectations of being the lead in a deal and getting a, a certain percentage of the company that changed, you know, you know, over the last few years. Uh, but the one thing I think, you know, we are, you know, we consistently harp on is the, the necessity and importance of, of governance. And you know, a lot of founders, I think, have gotten to the point where they, you know, they really felt that a board seat was uh, essentially a mountain of gold and you just couldn't sort of allow anybody near it, uh, even if, you know, that person was their lead investor. Um, but what we have found is that when you have the right investors with you, you know, they can help you think about how to be a board member, hmm. right? They can help you think about how to run great board processes. 
Because at the end of the day, the founder reports to the board, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so without a board, you don't have a you have a founder who's not reporting to anybody, mm-hmm. right? And and then you don't have any guardrails, mm-hmm. right? So there is you know and you know and not every founder is a high integrity founder. Mm-hmm. Not every founder is is going to have the experience and the expertise and the exposure, right? And so what you're trying to do is to make sure that you can balance this, and so. The, the biggest frustration for us, I think, is just, you know, how long it takes to fundraise, because the one thing that, you know, we consider to be a high value add to the ecosystem is our willingness and ability to lead investments. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very, very, very good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, we are happy and willing to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we see a lot of founders who are just begging for leads. Mm-hmm. They have everybody else around the table saying, yes, once you find a lead, we'll do the deal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, very few people have that experience and expertise to, to lead a deal um, it's a non-trivial task mm-hmm. um, and so but you know for us we're like look this is one of the things that we bring to the ecosystem as value and so yes so and you know and it, there have been a few deals where we've led them and, and especially at the pre-seed level we've led them and we didn't take a board seat mm-hmm. um, not necessarily because we didn't want one i mean we did but it found you know didn't feel like it was necessary at that point in time mm-hmm. and so we're like that's fine Mm-hmm. Um, we'll still stay very close. We'll mm-hmm. still, you know, we'll still stay, you know, you know as, as, as close as we can and, 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 and offer and shape folks. But we always tell folks that one of the reasons why you bring an equity in your cap table is, is it prepares you for the requirements of being a founder in a venture-backed company mm-hmm. with cross-border investors. Mm-hmm. All right. So they're not just waking up one morning and learning how to build a deck for your board. Mm-hmm. Right. It takes, it takes practice. Right. So that's that's I think for us is 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 something I think we try to communicate to founders that the board seat is very important. You should certainly take you should certainly take um, the time to see how you feel it. But an investment company that has enough experience that you know you, you know is not going to just sort of you know let you run this company willy nilly mm-hmm. uh, is is also important. And then I think one final element is that one of the key elements that we evaluate you know in the process of making investments is how the founder of founders how they're thinking about culture, mm. Mm. right? Because in many ways, you start to realize that the culture you build with sort of the first 10 employees, um, it's really hard to shake once you're at 100. Mm. 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 So forcing them to think about it um, is, is very, very important. And you find over and over again, how few of them do. Mm. They always thinking about, oh, we're just gonna build a product. Oh, then we're gonna just go apply to YC and the like. And you're, thinking, you're, not, you're not thinking about some of the soft things. And culture and processes, you see those things, if you build them well at the beginning, they scale well. Fantastic. And, and, and you know, I've spoken to a number of your um, uh, portfolio companies and, you know, I, I must, you know, it's very impressive to hear that you are one of the most helpful um, investors on your cap table. So, um, you know, fantastic and, and keep doing the, the, the great work in, in helping founders, even in really, you know, in difficult moments. So um, I'm definitely a big fan, big fan of yours in regards to that. Now I'm talking about the... It's the difficult, it's the difficult moments that matter though. Uh, you know, anybody can be helpful in an up cycle. It's when the up cycle changes to the down cycles that you, you know, you will know who sort of, who really matters and who really counts, you know? So I always tell people, you know, it's not those who care when everything is great. It's those who care when everything is not. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for that. And then moving into moving to the ecosystem, um, the African ecosystem specifically, uh, what what has changed over the last couple of years um, in Africa? What, what are the positives? What are the things that you're excited about? And what are the not so positives um, uh, in regards to what has changed in, in the African ecosystem? 
Oh, lots of, I think this, you can sort of point to many things. One is, you know, the increasing uh, value ascribed to Africa <laughs> by external investors. That's absolutely very positive. Uh, the increasing recognition that African entrepreneurs can build real companies, real sustainable companies. Um, the, the recognition, I think as well, that, that regulators, you know, can eventually get converted, <laughs> you know, from sort of old school mentalities to sort of more new school things. So that, you know, that those are all good. And then I think there's more money in the ecosystem, a lot more money. <laughs> but, you know, what's not so good, a couple of things. One is um, the money is not evenly distributed. Okay. So you're seeing very large amounts on an aggregate basis, but not, it's still going to a small handful of companies. Right. So for the small handful that can get into the global accelerators, YC, Techstars, ODX, and whatever it is, right, they're able to sort of attract, you know, in, you know investments. Um, but the truth of the matter is that those companies represent a small percentage of what we'll consider backable businesses, mm -hmm. right? And, and then you now sort of unpack that and realize that, you know, in many cases, some of these entrepreneurs are great entrepreneurs, but they don't package well. Okay. <laughs> right. So we like those <laughs> because and we've seen a few that we really wanted to invest in. We couldn't get, you know, our financial backers to support us and they've turned out to be monster businesses. Mm -hmm. um, but that continues to be an interesting problem because then you then realize that there's a set of default look and feel for the companies that are able to raise money. Mm -hmm. um, but there is, no, there is no certainty that they will be successful mm -hmm. in the long run, right? So... I think, you know, that's, I think, a, a concern. We don't have enough money either. That's <laughs> another big problem, right? So even this money you're talking about, even when venture grew, you know, as, you know, in terms of the size of, you know, dollars going into venture, Africa didn't outperform, right? It grew essentially along the same lines. <laughs> so, you know, that sort of worries me because it tells you that the excitement still is really still very surface deep, right? <laughs> it hasn't gotten beyond that. <laughs> and so... In a, if a market, in a real sustained market downturn, um, there's a real possibility that that money goes away. Hmm. You know, there was also an argument that um, Africa was compelling because the prices were, were cheaper okay. than elsewhere, right? And then there was this whole thing about how, oh, you know, you know, the prices should be the same as the Valley. And, you know, I never understood that because the companies in the Valley face different coefficients of drag. Mm -hmm. Right, they're operating in the U.S. market. The U.S. market is a twenty-two trillion dollar global market, and the like. Mm -hmm. And then you know, you, you now tell me that you know the upside for a Nigerian company is the same. And I'm thinking I could believe that, but the data tells me not. Mm -hmm. The 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 mechanics of the ecosystem tell me not. Right. Mm -hmm. So you sort of then start to wonder, you know, at some point in time, you know, we all have sort of these big expectations of these companies, mm -hmm. um, and which means that you know they could potentially return. Uh, you, know, you know, multiples on, on invested dollars, mm -hmm. but you still need to be able to find, you know, more money that goes into a lot more companies that can then get a shot at it. Because, you know, in many cases, and this, I think we've talked a little bit about it. This was, I think I saw a chart with 72% or something like not something in the 70s about the founders who were getting back were sort of the ones that had gone to school overseas. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, and for us, that was always problematic. I mean, from the beginning, we we back founders that never went to school overseas and the like. And, you know, we call them our local champions. And it's not being derogatory in any way. So it's like, look, 
they tend to sort of understand the way these markets operate at, at a very, very high resolution, right? Mm -hmm. in, a, in a manner that, you know, I think you just flying in and on the stance of British Airways, you know, you know, you're just gonna take two years. Mm -hmm. So I, I still remember when I, I would tell folks when they were hiring, it was a funny story. And they were like, oh, we, this person just come back from the UK or the US, they, they, they want, they, they're excited about being back to Nigeria. And I'd be like, hire them in two years mm -hmm. because they need, you need to Nigerianize them. And that takes two years. Mm -hmm. And then they're more interesting at that point in time. So, so yeah, generally speaking, ecosystem, and then you're getting more and more investors. You're also getting this very interesting transition to people who are making angel investments, you know, who are sort of trying to raise small funds mm -hmm. and the like. And so, you know, that, that natural evolution of the of the ecosystem is happening. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we still we still have a long ways to go. And I just I just I think you know what the ecosystem probably could do with is a little bit more humility mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and 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 being sort of self aware. Mm. thanks for that that's that's really really helpful and um i think you, you mentioned it a few times and i wanted to kind of double click on it um you know i saw i saw an interview where you said that in silicon valley founders win on products um but it's not it's not always true for emerging markets due to the due to the coefficient of drag what do international investors misunderstand about investing in africa or emerging markets from a coefficient of drag perspective i think I, we've seen this a fair bit that you can have innovation across several axes. You can have innovation across product. Mm -hmm. You can have innovation across distribution. You can have innovation across business models. Mm -hmm. And when you leave the US or wherever it is, the, the last two are harder to understand. Where you just sort of think, well, I could build a better product. And that's really sort of the source, you know, the organization, you know, when I talk about organizing the offline, I always used to make this joke that you can probably write better code sitting in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But that code has to come and operate on the streets of Lagos. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. Mm. So that's one thing I think, you know, just recognizing that you can really win just, you know, in, you know, refactoring business models, or you can really win in refactoring distribution. And, you know, and sometimes it's not, you know, and some of these and access to these markets can be a lot more important than anywhere else. So you're like, okay, I could build a better product, but okay, I'm like, go try to get that distribution. Mm. And you understand how gatekeepers work. Mm. You know, and then you now understand that the whole move fast, break things mantra, you know, can be problematic. You know, and then you now learn how to sort of truly manage regulators. You know, there's a, there's a company we made an investment in, we turned down three times. And we finally decided to do it the fourth time, not because we thought any more of the founder, we thought the founder was fantastic. But when the founder showed me an interaction with the regulator, I was like, okay, it's time to invest now. Mm. The founder went on Dobale, you know, mm. when I did the whole frustrating thing for the, and I was like, oh, okay, you figured it out now. Mm -hmm. I see you figured it out there. Mm -hmm. That you can write letters all day long. Mm -hmm. You can sit here and talk about your product and how it's going to change the world. But until you fall flat in front of him and tell him good morning and, and how was your night and all of these things that allow people to sort of open doors for you. Mm -hmm. It's not with the old, I went to Harvard and I know now and I have a network now. Mm -hmm. now it'll be one person sitting in some office that has no air conditioning, just a fan that is the literal gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. And your best product isn't going to win. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you for that. I think that's um that's that's really uh, really really helpful. Um, now, kind of talking about the future for 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 Echo VC. I know you've ex you you initially started off in Africa, and um, you know you you now ex expanding. I read I read somewhere that you said that underserved markets. Um, you have underserved markets in the U.S. For example, you said um, <laughs> a part of uh, Alabama is 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 in, in some cases worse than certain parts of of Lagos. Um, what what's the future for 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 Echo VC and 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 you know, where, where are you excited about, about the next few steps, next few years for, for ECOVC as a firm? So it's an excellent question. So the future, I think, there's sort of an internal facing future and an external facing future. Mm -hmm. Internally, we are, you know, now changing the, the sort of senior management sort of tier, right? So the next vehicles going forward, ECOVC seed, our, um, our, our blockchain fund um, and then the larger funds uh, will have the next generation of partners. Hmm. And so, you know, what we've done that I don't think we've sort of ever really sort of sought credit for is we've, we've helped train hmm. a couple of folks that, um, so, you know, we're also now getting Echo VC alums doing some really interesting things, which, you know, really makes me happy. Um, but internally it is to start to, you know, showcase this talent, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, and promote the talents and uh, and and like so there's that. Um, outwardly facing, it is to continue what we do, and where where sometimes you know, in, in some cases, I think what we found is that many of the limited partners and investing funds, you know, want us to be a certain thing, a certain product. Mm -hmm. So you know, we invest in underrepresented founders and on you know underserved markets, and so we've had LPs that are like, this is great, come do this in the U.S. because they're one of the most experienced Black GPs mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, but we are looking for alpha wherever we can find it. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing that tells me that there's better alpha in the U.S. than in France or in the U.K. or in Namibia or, you know, or in India or in Thailand. Mm -hmm. Right. So all we care about is, can we find these underrepresented founders mm -hmm. and, you know, and can we sort of really sort of help build, help them build, you know, on their vision. So I think the future for us is to be able to have the capital and the discretion. Mm -hmm. That's what we work hard on every day. Mm -hmm. And to be able to also to be able to show enough success stories mm -hmm. for people to start to truly believe that this is possible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I look back at my Intel Capital days, you know, there were lots of people who said, oh, he's, he's crazy. Like, why would you invest in a company that doesn't have a business model, mm. right? Called Facebook. Why would you invest in a company that, you know, this thing's not going to be that important? You know, why, you know, music is not that interesting. It's called Pandora, right? And, you know, and years later, you know, people turn around and go, whoa, that was an important company. Mm. Whoa, we could have made $60 billion on that investment. And, you know, and for us, we, you know, it's a little bit of a drag to think about things from time to time because we're thinking, you know, you had a conviction and, you know, you didn't have the sort of the, 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 the cash, right? And so what we want to do is to make sure we can change that so we always have the conviction and the cash. Right. Because I think for us, finding these opportunities and backing these founders, um, we don't have to prove anything anymore, right? Mm -hmm. We are able to do that. And we just want to continue to do that. And so the future is to, to be able to, to build a eventually global firm mm -hmm. that, you know, will continue to do this. And, you know, you're right. You know, when I talk about sort of emerging markets, I am not kidding. The U.S. has emerging markets nested in it, right? <laughs> and, and you know, and you you've seen this thing over the last couple of years, where you're seeing more investors saying, "Hey, there's there's there there founders in the middle of America," and you're thinking, "Whoa, 
you know, child long for so long. You know, when I when I made my first investment in New York in 2009, um, there was a very interesting sort of sentiment about New York not being really that an important a place for technology VCs, mm-hmm. right? And you know, now you look at New York, and New York is absolutely, yeah, absolutely, you know, centerpiece of technology VC. But it wasn't that long ago when people. So then you're now sitting in. In, in Minnesota, you're sitting in Cleveland, mm-hmm. you know, and you're thinking, okay, that's interesting because if New York was considered an emerging market in terms of the lack of interest, you know, it's fine. It eventually come around, right? Mm-hmm. But there's still going to be these pockets in the U.S. that are not there yet, um, but, you know, still, you know, again, just really have some super high quality founders who are just, you know, not being considered, who have been missed, who have been ignored. And so we, we, we continue to look for them. But I think for us, we just don't want any boundaries on that. Absolutely, absolutely. And in the in the in the final five minutes that we have, just rounding up here, uh, for those uh, I guess it's a much lighter topic. For those visiting Nigeria, what restaurant would you recommend people visiting to taste some amazing Nigerian cuisine? Eesh. that's a tough one because there. I don't know if I have an answer <laughs> to it because there. I've always said, and I don't want to sort of be misconstrued here, but some of the best food. I have ever had in Lagos, for instance, because I went to board this school in Lagos, and whatever, but some of the best food I've ever had didn't sit inside a restaurant, a formal restaurant. It sat inside a buka. Yep. Okay? And so there used to be one buka near a co-hotel in BI. Woo! I think they, they eventually demolished the place and built some large edifice on there, so it's probably not there anymore. But if you go to Lagos, you know, people might say, oh, let me go take you to a fancy restaurant. You know, in, in Victor Island or in Koei and whatever it is. But all I would just tell you is ask people who are in the know where are the best bookers and at least go visit one of them. I mean, you know, you're going to come out there sweating and doing all these things because these are kind of like open air things. Um, but as an experience, unforgettable. Fantastic. And then a uh, final question Are there any, are there any other guests? Um, that, I mean, the theme is emerging markets, operators, and, and, and investors. Are there any other guests you think would be a great fit for the for the podcast to um to 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 interview? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, I mean, there'll be a significant amount of bias, but we see. I would I would absolutely suggest you you bring on the women operators. Bring on a couple of them. We have them in the portfolio mm-hmm. um, across sectors. So you know, again, Temi, Uju, Uche, who's at Lori Lori Systems. Um, those those types of operators, you know, okay. because they get you get to be able to see how what that day to day looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And you also sort of walk away, I think, with a lot of respect because by definition they don't get access to as much funding as mm-hmm. men, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so you you see how how remarkable capital allocators they become. Mm-hmm. So I think I think you will enjoy talking to them. Your guests will absolutely enjoy. It. You know your 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 listeners will absolutely enjoy these conversations. But those will be you know we're always happy to make introductions. But those will be the ones I would sort of tell you, I would suggest you, you speak with. Thank you so much, Igosa. This was a fantastic conversation. I really really enjoyed it. And that does it for another episode of the Globalization of Entrepreneurship podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our website globeschemers.com. That is globe. S-K-I-M-M-E-R-S.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast and other helpful resources. 
The podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcasting platform for download. And whilst you're there, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every episode of the podcast as soon as it's released.